we came to the place where we were just seeing these children being rescued, and although it was it was incredibly hard for us, that right there was the place where really God was just working in our hearts and finding us and, and teaching us that He was more than enough through all of this. Today on First Person, you'll hear the story of God moving a family all the way to Ethiopia to help widows and orphans. Welcome, I'm Wayne Shepherd, and I'm looking forward to introducing you today to Levi Benkirk, the founder of Bring Love In and the author of No Greater Love. First Person is here each week at this time with conversation that always centers on God's work in changing people and giving them purpose and meaning in life. And you can find out more about our program on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. As a matter of fact, there's more about today's guest and his ministry in Ethiopia, which is an incredible story of God's love on display. Follow the links you'll find at firstpersoninterview.com. And then join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. Well, what happens when a California businessman and his family are called of God to give up their comfortable lifestyle and move to Africa to help build new families among the widows and orphans of Ethiopia? That was my question as I talked with Levi Benkirk and asked him to describe the adventure that God has led them on. (laughs) It's it's been truly an adventure. That's a great word to describe it. you know, one one that we didn't didn't necessarily ask for, didn't know was coming in our lives. um, you know, I, we explain a lot of this in the book, but but my wife and I were living in Sacramento, California, running a business, watching the real estate market take uh, literally everything from us, and and felt you know very selfishly like we needed a break and needed to go uh, do something different for a little while, and so we uh, heard about a situation in Ethiopia where where there were orphans being rescued from a, a tribal practice that was. Um, these tribes were actually um, killing children for for one various reason or another um, because they thought they were cursed. And so we went, um, you know, honestly, looking back, and this is what I wrote about a lot in the book, our motives weren't uh, right. We we just kind of came into that situation thinking, hey, you know, here's here's a need, and, and we have a need as well. We, we needed a break. We needed to reset. Um, and got over there, and that's when God got a hold of us and just emptied us out of who we were completely in helped us refocus and, and find him and realize this is where we're supposed to be. And so three and a half years later, we're still living in Ethiopia. Now, didn't this start with kind of a, a short-term mission trip that you were invited to go on? It was. It was two weeks of me going over there, which was kind of the initial, hey, I need to clear my head. Um, you know, I'd grown up in a missionary family, uh, said my whole life that I was never going to be a missionary. I was never going to be the person who... <laughs> a dangerous thing did. to say, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wanted to send money. I wanted to be the person who got behind missionaries. You know, I throughout my life believed in the work that was being done overseas, but um, never wanted to be the person to go and do it. And so went on this two-week trip um, and just knew immediately. Uh, you know, I was it was it was really one of those moments like. You know, you read about Paul on the road, <laughs> uh, God coming to him and just, you know, grabbing a hold of him and saying, yeah. hey, there's something different that I want for you. It was a blinding light, wasn't it? Hey, uh, the backstory, you mentioned it briefly, is the fact that your your business was failing or had failed, and you really were at a crossroads in life, but did you expect it to go this direction? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, even, even months after we were uh, living in Ethiopia, we were still talking of what we were going to come back to the States and do, not realizing 
fully that, you know, that there was a work that God was doing in our family and that it wasn't yet nearly completed. And, and to this day, it still isn't. But at this point, we now know this is where God has us. And for the, you know, very long foreseeable future, this is where we're going to be living and, and working to continue to, to help, you know, rescue kids who have no families and no one to care for them. All right, here's the tough question. Do you think God allowed that business to go south on you to uh, to move in your heart this way? It's a great question. You know, I I would never want the devastation. I mean, we had a, a decent number of employees. I think we had 16 people working for us full-time and 50 consultants who were working full-time through other, you know, engineers and different companies that we had hired. Um, so I couldn't say, you know, oh, yeah, that devastation was great. No. But for me personally, it was a journey of learning that, you know, the the promises that God has for us aren't for things to always go well, but but for, you know, the ability to be able to handle things and the ability to be able to, he wants our heart is, is what he's after. And mm-hmm. so through that, I saw he got a hold of my heart somehow through devastation. Levi, when you took that first trip to Ethiopia, what did you find there? What what uh, just grabbed you and grabbed your attention that you you knew you had to do something about it? There was a moment where uh, was sitting in the, the orphanage compound. The orphanage had only been going for a few weeks. There were, uh, I think there were nine kids there on that first, you know, that were initially rescued from the tribe. Uh, sitting there with one of the girls, Bale, her name was, sitting there with her on my lap and, and just thinking of the fact that this girl literally would have been dead. She wouldn't be alive today if, if it wasn't for, and it wasn't even us. I mean, there was another uh, a group of short-term missionaries that had been there a few weeks prior to my getting there that had done the initial rescue for these kids. And just realizing, like, you know, it's like this moment of a, kind of my heart opening and seeing, wow, looking inside myself, you know, here I am focused on me. Here I am focused on making money and doing, you know, all these things. And really so focused on the, the fact that as things failed, oh, you know, it just felt so horrible. And I wanted to, like, you know, going to God. I, you know, I had literally been going to God every day saying, why would you let this happen? How could you, you know, do this to me, letting this fail around me? And, uh, you know, blaming him for that. But then realized how shallow that was compared to the fact that this, this girl who at the time was only 18 months old, she had no control, and and she was saved because someone stepped out and did something, because someone obeyed, and it was just, you know, okay, God, I'm willing to obey. I'm willing to stop looking inward to myself right now and say, okay, let's do this. Let's. Explain to us why these children face death in Ethiopia. You know, thankfully, the practice is far, far less today than it was, Um the government has moved in really heavy. Um, you know, I don't want to say that it's because of work that we did, um, although thankfully since the time when we initially arrived down in the tribes, it has been a, just a massive transformation in the hearts of the, the tribe members and the government officials and everybody who's involved. And so, you know, we don't know the exact numbers as to whether it's entirely eradicated, but it seems like it, it, it's very close to being there. And there's been some great people um, along the way who are from the tribes that have stepped up and just started to, to say this is wrong, this, this shouldn't happen. But why were um, the children dying? They were, they were being killed because of a tribal superstition, basically. You know, if their top teeth come in before their bottom teeth, or if a child is born out of wedlock, they believe that if that child is not killed or taken away from the, from the tribe, like we were doing with those kids, then the tribe itself would be cursed. That's shocking. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, it had to be shocking to you when you encountered it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Talk more about the impact it had on your soul. Um, you know, as a family, we moved there. At the time, we had three kids. When we moved there, we ended up adopting one of the kids who was rescued from the tribes. 
just a just a total transformation to realize you know to to meet children who were that close to death. Uh, you know they they're not to blame for this. They're completely victims in this situation. All right, now um, you're, you're getting ahead of me on the story here because you moved to Ethiopia, so right. we jump from a short term mission trip to some point you came home and said to your family, "Hey, we're we're going to go to Ethiopia." <laughs> it's funny. I came home um, saying, "Wow, that was incredible." It was my wife who said, "We need to move to Ethiopia." <laughs> really? Yeah, she just, she just, you know, I, her and I talked several times on the phone while I was there, um, and she just felt this this call within her that this is what our family needs to do, and so um, I'm thankful. I, I think that shows she was a lot more in tune with where. God was at at that time than I was. I, you know, I was still focused just very internally on, on the failings that were happening in my life and what that was making me look like. And, you know, it was just being emptied out as a person. <laughs> and so she was ready. She said, let's do this, you know, and, and so I agreed, okay, we'll do this for a short time. Um, you know, maybe we'll come back and, and start another business or, or do this again. Um, but didn't really realize it was going to be so all-encompassing and just completely changing our lives. Well, I've long held that very often the voice of God sounds like your wife. And yes. <laughs> I think you are evidence of that, right? Definitely. In my wife's case, it's, it's often true. She's, she's got a lot of wisdom. Uh, and thankful for her. <laughs> but you already had a couple of biological children at that point. We do. We had um, we had two biological children at that point, and then we had um, Ruth. Our at the time she was three years old. We had adopted um, okay. in California. So you have three children. How old were they at this time? Uh, the youngest was almost three years old, I believe, not quite three, um, and then five years old and nine. And I have yeah, to think or, you'd been living pretty comfortably in California. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know. Two years before that, we had millions of dollars in the bank. I had built an incredibly successful business, and uh, no doubt, we, you know, we were very comfortable and went from that to literally living in a, you know, it wasn't a mud house, a mud hut, but it was a mud house. It, it, you know, it had a metal roof on it, but the walls were made out of mud, and the water, um, we went one stretch with 18 days without water or power in our house down in the, down in the south, and so, I mean, it was just a complete... Uh, another world altogether, something that we weren't even really prepared for ourselves. But again, we came to the place where we were just, you know, seeing these children being rescued. And although it was, it was incredibly hard for us, um, that right there was the place where really God was just working on our hearts and finding us and, and teaching us that he was enough. He was enough. He was more than enough through all of this and, and all of the things that we had held on to personally and, you know, so much of it was reputation and what other people thought of us. All, you know, all of that was gone. We, we literally, as soon as we got there, we, we went three months without being able to connect to the Internet even once. So we had no idea about emails and what was going on. Um, phones worked sometimes, but it was so expensive, and we were living on such a little bit of money that we, you know, would talk to family once a month or, or at best. And so it was just this total disconnect, total send, you know, out and come to a completely another world we started to realize, you know, God is enough. God is enough in this place to, to fill all the needs that we have. And if we're going anywhere else, like we had been throughout our lives, we're going to the wrong place to, to be filled as people. More about the plight of these children in Ethiopia coming up with Levi Benkirk today on First Person. 
Next time on First Person, the testimony of a young man deceived by homosexuality and drugs. I really believe that I was God. I felt like I was invincible. Part of that is, you know, because of the drugs. <laughs> when I look back, you see how I was just fooling myself. Christopher Yuan and his mother Angela join us next time on First Person. Wayne Shepherd and my guest today on First Person is Levi Benkert, who is the author of No Greater Love. It's his family story of being convicted and moved of God to uh, to relocate to Ethiopia to help rescue children in Ethiopia. And it's an amazing story. And uh, Levi, I got to ask you, your wife is Jesse. When you came home from that first trip to Ethiopia and Jesse was the one who said, we need to go and live there, your friends must have thought you were nuts. Absolutely. No, we had a lot of very uh, deep conversations with friends where they were saying, you know, oh, you've gone off the deep end. Um, this is not what God's telling you to do. Uh, don't do it. <laughs> did, did they try to talk you out of it? Oh, I've, yes, yes, definitely. Very many, very many people on, very, on many different occasions. But so. where did you get the encouragement to go on? You know, honestly, a lot of it was just the being so uh, frustrated with the place that we were at and saying, okay, well, we're just going to do this for a short time. It's something different. Uh, I mean, like I said before earlier, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the motives weren't entirely pure. It wasn't us coming into this saying, okay, God, use us this wonderful place. But, but it, was, it was through this step that he got a hold of us and in this place. And so, I mean, it's just amazing to look back and see how God orchestrated it and used us instead, I, you know. Um, that's one thing I, I, I love about um, Tyndale, the, uh, the publisher of the book. Let me really just dive into that and, and not be uh, writing a book about some perfect person who had it all together. Because um, I believe that's how God uses, uses us is as broken people, as people who don't have it all together, who don't have all the answers. And, and in that place of literally having none of the answers is when he came in and, and used us, our family, the most. Well, talk to me about life in Ethiopia. You mentioned about the, you know, going through the uh, initial shock of uh, not having the Internet, for one thing, <laughs> which we've yeah. all yeah. grown so accustomed to having uh, at, at, at our fingertips any time of the day. But really, what was life like in those early days in Ethiopia? And what were you doing? What, uh, what were you able to jump into? Uh, we were able to jump into care with the kids right away, which was uh, very fulfilling. And I think a lot of the reason why we were um, able to keep going is because we were getting to know these kids and getting to help improve the conditions that they were in and, and work through what what the future would be for them. And, you know, I mean, these children were rescued, but, but um, we were there to think through what was next. Did you work with they... a specific orphanage? Yes, this the orphanage that we were completely funding was, you know, uh, started by this short-term team. Again, like I said earlier, uh, there were nine kids who basically were just in a rented house. And so we found a new place for them and kept, kept working on trying to work with the people who, you know, we had hired in locally to care for them. And then there were um, tribe members as well who were standing up against uh, this practice that we were working with. And um, a lot of really great people dedicating their lives to, to making this different local people, and that helped a lot. So it sounds like it was very important for you to be right there on the scene, to, to, to feel uh, the situation, to, to understand more fully how to address the situation. What were, yeah. some of, what were some of the practical things that you were able to do to help these children then, right, right immediately almost? Uh, you know, some of it was just real... Uh, you know, not glamorous. It was the accounting, putting accounting systems in place, the accountability and, uh, you know, 
figuring out, uh, you know, talking to our church back in the states and have you know having them kind of spread the word about what's going on and get get funds over there. Um, also, just on a real practical level, just figuring out, you know, okay, we're going to go order beds and we're going to put this many kids in a room and we need more nannies and um, and talking about the future. That was something that wasn't happening a lot with the locals. Is okay. Well, what is next in these kids' lives? Mm-hmm. And it was it was difficult, incredibly difficult. A lot of uh, culture shock and uh, a lot of steps that we made that we didn't uh, were just you know later we came to realize we're completely out of. Uh, outside of what they understood culturally. And so a lot of miscommunication and confusion and, but still kids were being rescued and, and it was good to see that happening and moving forward. Did you bump into a lot of red tape? Yes. <laughs> red tape in a very different way than you'd, you'd see in the States. Things that were just completely un, uh, you know, we couldn't understand why and what it meant and how it would happen, but just kept you know, bumping into it again and again and again. It had to be frustrating since you were there, uh, you know, sacrificing a lot to to help, and yet, uh, you know, you had to face all those obstacles. It had to be a frustration. Definitely, definitely. How did your family sure. ad- adjust? How did the, your your children adjust to to moving to Africa? You know, there was a, there were times when it was very hard for them, but they did a lot better than we did overall. <laughs> um, just uh, kids are amazing at. at you know, adapting to their circumstances and figuring out what happened. I mean, we literally didn't have any, they didn't have any electronics or any, we didn't have a television, we didn't have any ways to do anything with them. And so within a few days, they were out playing in the dirt and using sticks and uh, meeting neighborhood kids they didn't even speak the language with and playing with them and learning games. And so, yeah, that that was um, one of the things that was really neat to see is watch our kids adapt to this new environment and and do so well and thrive there. So you went to Ethiopia with three children, but now you yes. have four, right? Right, right. Tell me about this this newest addition to your family. A short time after we moved um, down, a very short time, actually, just a few weeks, um, this little newborn girl came in, um, and the staff were just not set up to take a newborn. They were, you know, they were already overwhelmed. I think there were 14 kids at the time, um, very overwhelmed with caring for all these toddlers and, you know, five, six-year-olds. And so we took her home initially just thinking, oh, hey, this would be a place for her to come and stay with us um, while we work out the details. And, of course, we fell in love with her, uh, started asking questions about whether or not it was possible to adopt her, um, and initially heard that it was going to be super easy, uh, no problem. And so within a few weeks, we went and got an adoption certificate from the local government. Come to learn months later, that adoption certificate they gave us was completely invalid. There was no um, no truth to it whatsoever. And so had to go through this process that ended up taking a year. And a lot of the book is about that emotional process of having this, you know, this girl that we completely fell in love with in our family, but not knowing whether or not we were going to be able to keep her for um, over a year, actually, which mm. was, it's just, I can't even describe to you how uh, hard that was. What is her uh, name, Levi? Uh, her name when we got her was Idalawit. Um We changed it to Everly, something a little more pronounceable um, <laughs> when, we, when we have her over here in the States. So. <laughs> and describe her to me. I, I, I think everyone wants to see this sweet little girl. Oh, what a, just an adorable little sweet thing. She's, uh, she's out of, out of all our four kids, she has the, the kindest, gentlest heart you can imagine. 
and, and her story is just gripping. I mean, she literally at birth, her family knew that she had already been labeled as Mingi, they call it, and so she was cursed. And so uh, a few moments after she was born, her father took her outside the hut and put dirt in her mouth and tried to kill her. No. And so she was... Um, it just so happened that that someone was uh, who knew of the work that we were doing and knew of the orphanage had walked by at that moment, saw her I mean, choking to death on this dirt, picked her up, cleaned her mouth out, and, and whisked her away somewhere safe. And, and a few hours later, a car showed up, and he was able to put her in the car and save her. So, I mean, from the moment she was born, uh, this girl has an, an amazing uh, story in her life. And we were just blessed to have her and just thankful that, that God is, God's hand is very strong in her life. I don't want to jump over that moment. Her father tried to, to kill her and murder his own daughter. Right, right. That That is un, I mean, unbelievable to us that that happens in the 21st century. Yeah, but I mean, the... the you know, here in, in America, we don't see it so vividly, but these these spiritual forces are very real. And this is a place where, you know, if they don't do that, countless other children might die from some sickness or some things. And this, I mean, they believe this, absolutely believe this. And I think when we first went in, we kind of tried to gloss over it and say, oh, this is, some, this is stupid, you don't really believe it. But, you know, then we started to hear stories of, you know, there's one family that, that they claim they can control the snakes and and. You know, they've talked to these evil forces, and, and they do. You know, where they, they have another family that they don't like, and they say the snakes are going to come tonight. The snakes literally come oh. into that village and, or into that hut and kill one of the family that members. That sounds demonic, doesn't it? it? It absolutely is. And so, you know, it, it was sad to see that the force, you know, these forces at work in these villages and these people who come, you know, having to make these sacrifices of, it's the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, what more could you possibly give up that's worse than a child? And and so it was wonderful to see, and this was something we can't claim at all because there were other people who were doing it, but to see the transformation happening from churches who are growing out in that area. Um, and and once these tribe people become Christian, once they find God, the practice stops completely because they find something bigger. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's been really neat to see, and that's work that you know, we've uh, come alongside and supported and, and been very excited to watch happen as other Christians, many of them have been there for years, and these churches are finally just uh, coming into their own and, and growing, and people are, are learning what's happening and, and coming to these churches and coming to Christ. It's really neat. Levi, I don't hear any regret in your voice at all. Oh, absolutely not. We, we've learned so much and um, come to a place where we now— um, we're working to to place children from the government orphanage in new families, um, and we see you know right now there's 25 kids that have been placed in these new families. Um, it's widows and orphans coming together to create new families, and just seeing this this vision being born out of this experience that God brought us through, um, it's beautiful and wonderful, and we're just thankful for for the grace that He's put on on our lives and that He's uh, gotten a hold of us through this. This family's obedience to God's call in their lives is a remarkable story. Levi has authored a book about the experience titled No Greater Love, and they have set up a website which describes their ministry in more detail. When you go to firstpersoninterview.com, you'll find links to these resources. There's also an audio archive so you can share what you've heard today with someone else. Just visit firstpersoninterview.com. First Person is a weekly program focusing on the lives of people who have found their faith in God and obedience to His calling to be a profound experience. Their stories inspire all of us to greater faith in Jesus Christ. 
There's a schedule of upcoming broadcasts on our website, firstpersoninterview.com, and we're found on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. Well, we have another powerful story to tell you next week. Christopher Yuan was a practicing homosexual and in prison for drug dealing when Christ saved and redeemed him. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next week for First Person. First Person.